Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 90-meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Lohoko and Tabison Dema. Our top stories in Africa rise and shine at Dasawa. Political situation in the Sutu dominates discussions at a static meeting in Swaziland. Israeli authorities urge to stop illegal settlement building on occupied Palestinian land. And former Portuguese Prime Minister leads the race to be the next UN Secretary General. In economics news, South Africa's ESCOM denies blocking coal contract investigation. And in sports news, South African Proteas gain control of a second test against New Zealand. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musam. The Nigerian militant group Niger Delta Avengers, which has claimed responsibility for a series of attacks on oil and gas facilities, says it has halted hostilities. The statement by the Niger Delta Avengers comes just a week after the militant group said it was ready for a ceasefire and talks with government. The group previously rejected the government's offers of negotiations. Meanwhile, Nigeria's military on Saturday said it had launched a new offensive against militants in the Delta, killing five and arresting 23 to crack down on criminal activities. Meanwhile, urgent humanitarian measures are needed to save lives and ensure the protection of hundreds of thousands of people displaced by insurgents in northeast Nigeria. That is the assessment made by the UN Independent Expert on Internally Displaced People. Chalo Kabiyane has concluded a four-day visit to the region where government forces have been fighting Boko Haram terrorist group. He has called on the Nigerian government to ensure internally displaced people receive food, shelter, medical care and other essential services. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma has urged all parties in the Democratic Republic of Congo to actively participate in a national dialogue to find peace in the country. Zuma was part of a meeting of the SADC Organ of Politics, Defense and Security, which took place in Mbabane, Swaziland. The Democratic Republic of Congo has been unstable for over two years, as opposition parties in the country accuse President Joseph Kabila of trying to cling to power. The presidential elections that was due in November has been postponed to next year. South Africa's presidential spokesperson, Bongani Ngulunga. South Africa has been involved on the issue of the DRC for some time now. Uh, the main issue is to make sure that all parties, and that was the point that President Zuma emphasized on, that all political stakeholders in the DRC will have to participate in the national inclusive dialogue that President Kabila uh, has initiated so that uh, whatever happens in the DRC, everybody will be included and the result will be peace and stability in that country. 
Gabon has been praised for its peaceful and orderly presidential elections held at the weekend and congratulating the country, UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon expressed hope that the same spirit of peace and transparency will prevail when the provisional results are officially announced. Citizens took to the polls on Saturday to choose between incumbent Ali Bongo and opposition leader Jinping. And finally, former Portuguese Prime Minister Antonio Guterres remains the front-runner to become the next UN Secretary-General after the latest straw poll conducted behind closed doors in the Security Council. With 10 candidates remaining in the race, five men and five women, Guterres is emerging as a clear favourite after winning each of the three polls by a fairly wide margin. And as Show and Brown's piece reports, the former High Commissioner for Refugees received 11 encouragers out of 15, solidifying his position at the front of the pack. Slovakia's current foreign minister Miroslav Lajcek unexpectedly finished a strong second, while two women look set to withdraw from the race after a very poor showing. Moldova's Natalia German and the UN's former climate change boss, Costa Rica's Cristiana Figueres, both received 12 discourages out of 15. The history-making possibility of a first female UNSG hangs in the balance, with Bulgaria's candidate and current director-general of UNESCO, Irina Bokova, in third with seven encouragers. With Argentine Foreign Minister Susana Marcora in fifth, final decision on Ban Ki-moon's replacement will be made by the end of October. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Thank you, and It's 8.05 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg on this Tuesday, August the 30th, the 243rd day of 2016, with 123 days left in the year. Now, let's go back in time to today in 1984, and the Space Shuttle Discovery was launched on its inaugural flight. That was today in history in the year 1984. We have great news for you. Channel Africa has gone mobile. If you have a cell phone, you can now download the mobile app for Android. You can get it on Google Play. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The SADC facilitator for Lesotho, Deputy President Sil Ramaphosa, has described the Mountain Kingdom as work in progress. Speaking to the SADC organ on peace, security and defense in Babane, Swaziland yesterday, Ramaphosa said that the SADC Troika on peace, defense and security must seek to find a swift resolution of the political situation in that country. The political situation in Lesotho has dominated the meeting of the SADC Troika in Mbabane, Swaziland, ahead of the Heads of State Summit of the region. Pusi Chimombe reports. SADC facilitator Sarah Ramaphosa has suggested that an oversight committee whose establishment was agreed to in June this year by regional heads of state in Khaberoni, Botswana, be looked at as certain constitutional and security reforms are still to be implemented in Lesotho. 
The committee was initially envisaged to be constituted of eight members and take 45 days to ensure the implementation of recommendations of the SADC Commission of Inquiry into the tiny mountain kingdom. Limiting it to 45 days would be counterproductive. And if the people had to be on the ground for the entire period, it would be very expensive. So restructuring the composition and getting them to be more involved for a longer period until the job is done would be a lot better. So the proposal then is because there are still a number of things to be addressed and and recommendations to be implemented, the oversight committee should be seized with that for a longer period with the presence of fewer people which would cost less. The full report into Lesotho will be thrashed through at the Heads of Summit meeting on Tuesday with Lesotho Prime Minister Pagadita Musisili expected to give his presentation on developments in his country. Chairperson of the Troika, Tanzanian President John Magufuli's representative, her principal was unable to attend, also spoke about the hotspots in a region generally considered the most secure on the continent. We commend the government and the people of DRC for the efforts undertaken with the support from the African Union facilitator to initiate the national dialogue process. On the other note, as we welcome the efforts by the government and the people of the Kingdom of Lesotho to strengthen the structures for restoration of political normalcy. We also call for more efforts and commitment by the, the government of Lesotho towards the implementation of the summit decisions. President Jacob Zuma also pointed to the need for a resolution of the political situation in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where presidential elections were to be held in November but progress towards this has stalled, with violence again flaring up in the troubled eastern part of the country. Presidential spokesperson Bongani Ngulunga. South Africa has been involved on the issue of the DRC for some time now. Uh, the main issue is to make sure that all parties, and that was the point that President Zuma emphasized on, that all political stakeholders in the DRC will have to participate in the national inclusive dialogue that President Kabila uh, has initiated so that uh, whatever happens in the DRC, everybody will be included and the result will be peace and stability in that country. The Troika also discussed Madagascar, where despite returning to democracy in 2013 after a coup which ousted then-President Mark Ravalomanana, the country still remains unstable. Mulunga says the political situations of Mozambique and Zimbabwe, where many believe Sadak's attention is needed, are not on the formal agenda. That report by Busi Chimombe. Israeli authorities should cease and reverse illegal settlement building on occupied Palestinian land as prospects dwindle for a two-state solution to the conflict. This is according to Nikolai Mladenov, the United Nations Special Coordinator for the Middle East Peace Process, who briefed the Security Council yesterday. The UN Radio's Matthew Wells reports. Mr. Mladenov described the past month as being relatively calm in terms of violence in Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories, but he pointed to three key areas where progress was fundamental to altering the grim prospects for a negotiated peace. Since the 1st of July, he said Israel had advanced plans to build more than 1,700 new housing units in the occupied West Bank, including East Jerusalem. Continuing to build in violation of international law would neither create hope for the Palestinian people or bring security to Israelis, he added. 
All of these plans, Mr. President, would essentially create new illegal settlements, and I call on Israel to cease and reverse these decisions. Let me be clear, no legal acrobatics can change the facts that all outposts, whether legalized under Israeli law or not, whether located on state land or absentee land or private Palestinian land, remain illegal under international law. It is difficult to read in these actions a genuine intention to work toward a viable two-state solution. Special Coordinator Mladenov also focused on the importance of Palestine-wide local council elections due to take place on the 8th of October. He said it was a positive development that political parties taking part, including the militant Hamas group, which controls the Gaza Strip, had agreed to an electoral code of conduct. These elections are expected to be the first simultaneous polls in the West Bank and Gaza since 2006. Conducting the local elections in line with established international standards can contribute to advancing Palestinian reconciliation. The lack of unity, however, or any attempt to influence the outcome of the elections, including through intimidation, threats, violence or coercion, risks widening divisions and undermining the Palestinian national cause. With the second anniversary of the ceasefire that ended the last Gaza conflict having just passed, Mr Mladenov said too little was being done by both Israel and Hamas to improve life for the more than one million Palestinians confined there. While progress has been made on reconstructing the physical damage, sadly, we're miles away from repairing the physical and psychological damage of the conflict. Until the closures are lifted, the militant build-up has ceased and Gaza is back under the control of the legitimate Palestinian authorities, International funding and an uninterrupted flow of aid are a lifeline to over one million Palestinians in the Strip who are struggling to survive with a dire humanitarian situation. He told the council it was time for political leaders and the international community to stop simply managing the conflict and end occupation with a solution that matches the legitimate national aspirations of both Israelis and Palestinians. Matthew Wells, United Nations. Former Portuguese Prime Minister António Guterres remains the front-runner to become the next UN Secretary-General after three straw polls conducted behind closed doors in the Security Council. With ten candidates remaining in the race, five men and women, Guterres is a clear favourite after winning each of the three polls by a fairly wide margin. Savarka's current Foreign Minister Miroslav Layek unexpectedly finished a strong second while two women look, look set to withdraw from the race after a very poor showing. Show in Bryce Peace reports. The 15-member council went into this vote with just 10 of the original 12 candidates remaining after two, one from Montenegro and another from Croatia, withdrew from the race earlier this month. Council members can do three things in the straw poll, vote to encourage, discourage or express no opinion at all. Guterres, who has led after each vote so far, received 11 encourages, three discourages and one no opinion expressed. The transparency that the General Assembly rightly introduced into this process is working. There's a striking similarity between those who are doing well in the straw polls versus those who uh, are doing well in the hearings by the General Assembly. So I'm glad to hear uh, about that additional transparency. UK Ambassador Matthew Rycroft was the only council member willing to share his thoughts about the process. When you look at the requirements for the winning candidate, the absolute minimum that the winning candidate needs to get is nine positive votes and no vetoes. And that is a bar which is quite a long way away from the uh, current standing of the vast majority of candidates.
With Guterres at the top, Slovakia's Motoslav Lajcek received nine encouragers, five discouragers and one no opinion. The top woman is UNESCO Director General and Bulgaria's Irina Bakova with seven encouragers. Moldova's Natalia German and former UN climate change boss Costa Rica's Cristiana Figueres both received 12 discouragers. The whole point of the straw polls is to gradually winnow down the field and as you say some, uh, some, some favourites are emerging uh, which is welcome. That is the whole point of, of this process and it needs to carry on. That's what the third straw poll today is all about. Hopes for a historic first female secretary-general hang in the balance. Former New Zealand Prime Minister Helen Clark received six encouragers with eight discouragers. Argentine Foreign Minister Susanna Malcora has seven encouragers and an equal number of discouragers. Ambassador Rycroft called on candidates to do the math for themselves and withdraw, as others have done. I would encourage them to look at, are they going to get to nine positive votes and no vetoes? And if they are, then great, they should stay in the race. And if if that's a long way off, then I think they should follow the uh, example set by the two I mentioned earlier. The date for the next straw poll has yet to be announced, with a final selection expected by October. I'm Sherman Bricepies in New York. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Mujemwa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yawundi, informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.17 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our South Africa's ruling African National Congress says the Alliance Secretariat will soon convene the much-anticipated Alliance Summit to heal divisions and simmering tensions in the ANC-SACP-COSATU alliance. Relations in the tripartite alliance have taken a knock, with the SACP saying its senior leaders deployed in government are now being targeted for raising concerns against corruption and factionalism. Kosatu, on the other hand, says its call for a political council meeting to discuss the alliance's dismal performance in the last municipal elections has fallen on deaf ears. And the two organizations, including Sankor, say they want an urgent alliance summit to discuss all the challenges facing the alliance. Debomukobo has more. The ANC-led alliance was founded on a common commitment to the objectives of the National Democratic Revolution and a need to unite South Africans behind these objectives. The ANC cooperated to some degree with the Communist Party of South Africa in the early 1920s. This cooperation lasted until 1927, when some traditional African leaders opposed white-led communist involvement in the black nationalist movement. In 1953, the Communist Party of South Africa became the SACP. Over the years, the party worked with the ANC to oust the apartheid regime. Some communist leaders like Chris Hahn and Joe Slovo had both served as chief of staff of the ANC's military wing Umkonto Wesizwe and in some of its most important committees. 
Although the obituary of the ANC alliance has been written many times, ANC leaders past and present have on different platforms stressed the importance and relevance of this alliance. And the SACP Second Deputy General Secretary Solima Paila says they cannot imagine the alliance without any of its components. That's unimaginable, but um, if the road continues and no action is taken, the alliance will disintegrate. The alliance is the alliance of different class formations that seek to reinforce one another in their struggle to liberate our people from all sorts of inequalities, whether it's racial inequality, economic inequality, and gender inequality, and the remnants of that, uh, poverty, unemployment, and so forth. That's the reason why we are together. But if all of these key revolutionary principles are now beginning to be in short supply in the movement, then we can't call ourselves a revolutionary movement. So we can't imagine a situation of the alliance without any of the components. Weighing in, Kosato President Stumatlamene says they should always work to keep the alliance intact, as today they need each other more than previously. He insisted that no one will survive outside the alliance. It's too ghastly to contemplate that situation. You know, one of the alliance partners veering off this alliance will also perish, just as the other partners may not survive that type of a situation. This alliance is what has been the clue of the South African Revolution, and and we should always work to keep that intact. There is no one alliance partner that will survive without the other. We need each other. So if there's anybody suggesting that the only way is to break the alliance and hope to survive, you'll be wiped out. Solima Paila also says their relations with the ANC have deteriorated to the level that even their members in government are facing a possible chop in the next cabinet reshuffle for raising the party's stance on corruption and factionalism in the ANC. He says this caused them during the local government elections. But ANC spokesperson Zizi Kotwa says if the SACP feels its members are being purged, they should raise their concern with the ANC. Those allegations the Communist Party will discuss that in the Alliance Secretariat. But I don't think necessarily there is such a decision or just a notion that suggests that there is a notion within the ANC that um, those who are targeted in the main are targeted because of their membership of the Communist Party. I don't think so. I mean, you would know that there's a lot of uh, comrades in, in the national leadership of the ANC who hold secure membership. And therefore, there can be such a decision in the ANC. But however, if in the view of the party, they think that uh, communists are being targeted for whatever reason, let that be a discussion within the alliance. And I think the ANC will listen to that. Cosantos Dumotlamene says throwing mud at each other will never solve their differences, insisting that it's only the alliance summit that will honestly address some of these challenges. It's a concerning matter that we do not seem to be in a hurry to meet. A few meetings have been tried to be convinced. They don't seem to be coming yet. The situation warrants that the alliance partners should meet. Actually, COSATO has called for an agent political council, which should be preceded by an alliance summit, which must meet urgently to discuss these matters. And this meeting, in our view, is delayed. In our statement, we say it's long overdue. We should have had that meeting before the elections. It seems the parties are busy, yet the environment is such that we need each other more than any other time this time around. Zizi Koto says the meeting will ultimately take place at a time to be determined by the Alliance Secretariat. 
we are already working towards that form of the meeting. The Alliance Secretariat would have to decide on an appropriate time, whether after the consultation or after the visit, having listened to the people, whether we present what we heard from the people, whether that meeting must take place. It's not a debate. It will take place. The timing of it is something that the Secretariat must discuss. That report by Ndebo Mugobo. The United Nations says the horrendous practice of enforced disappearances can affect entire communities by creating an atmosphere of fear and chaos. This is according to Santiago Cocuera, a member of the United Nations Committee on Enforced Disappearances, CED. This comes as the world marks International Day of the Victims of Enforced Disappearances. A forced disappearance is an act committed by the state in the form of abduction, arrest, detainment or any other violation of one's rights which is then denied or concealed. Corquera explains the importance of the issue and of the CED. The suffering that family members of the disappeared is immense and I would like to express my wholehearted solidarity to them. The only reason of the existence of the treaty and the committee I belong to is to tackle the problem that derives from this horrendous practice and particularly to try to bring some justice, some truth and some reparation to victims and family members of direct victims. And you mentioned the loved ones and the families of the people who were taken. How do these disappearances affect the communities that they occur in? A victim of enforced disappearance is not only the disappeared person, that is the adopted person, the person who was deprived of his or her liberty, but also the loved ones, the family members of the disappeared person. The communities also suffer because if a person has been disappeared, then that community goes into a spiral of fear and anguish, fearing that some others may be subject to the same treatment, to the same fate, if they were friends with a person who was disappeared, if they sympathized with a political movement. That, uh, it is such a horrendous practice that really affects not only family members and loved ones, but also the community as a whole. And you're a member of this Committee on Forced Disappearances. Can you tell me what are some of the biggest challenges that you face when it comes to ending the practice of forced disappearances? Unfortunately, there is no region in the world where enforced disappearances are absent. One of the biggest challenges that the committee has nowadays is that our convention is only ratified by more than 50 countries, and we need more ratifications of that convention. And to all countries that ratify the convention, to recognize the competence of the committee to consider individual cases. What should the global community be more aware of when it comes to this issue? What should countries do at the local level? Well, adopt the measures or those provisions, keeping a very strict registry of every detained person from the moment of the detention until the moment that person is set free. If one person is detained and is not registered, that is not taken to an official detention center, that person is extremely vulnerable of being a victim of enforced experience. If those provisions of the treaty are adequately implemented by state parties, then I think we can 
be hopeful that disappearances could be eradicated in the future. That was Santiago Coquera, member of the United Nations Committee on Enforced Disappearances, speaking to UN Radio's Laura Jarrell. Police in South Africa's northwest province have concluded the process of opening cases against parents, guardians and those responsible for impregnating over 3,000 underage girls. The Ministry of Social Development made the shocking discovery in the rural Ratlowu municipality on Sunday. Some of the mothers are as young as 11 years old. They are believed to have been impregnated by older men. Police say arrests are imminent pending the transfer of dockets to the Director of Public Prosecutions. Lucas Mutibedi reports. The country is still reeling in shock at the discovery of these young girls who are all mothers. The young girls from the impoverished rural communities in Rato municipality are alleged to have been made pregnant by older men. MEC for Social Development, Fenichao Laului, says they will investigate circumstances around the upbringing of these young mothers, whom she now calls victims. We are going to make sure that indeed we follow up case by case where those children come from. And also we need also to know where are the fathers. The police are busy right now opening cases. The news sent shockwaves around the country with the office of the presidency saying a tough stance needs to be taken against all those involved. Mlungisi Kumalo from the presidency. What is shocking us here is to discover that children as young as 13, 14, 15 have children. Now this says to us that people who impregnated these young girls are actually guilty of statutory rape. Those perpetrators should actually be charged. Police Provincial Commissioner Bele Mutsonyani, who immediately dispatched officials on the ground, said she had visited the area and dockets have been opened. She says arrests are imminent pending the transfer of dockets to the Director of Public Prosecution. Dockets have been opened again currently, but for now no arrests were effected. So what we are going to do, we are going to investigate and place them before the prosecutor for decision, then we take it from there. Police will be the complainant and we will also charge the parents for failure to report the offense. With various children's and women's organizations condemning this incident, Pulet Kosha from the men's organization known as Brothers for Life has apologized for all men in the society. Asking for forgiveness from the ladies is because it's painful, immoral to see them in such a state. It's wrong and men should learn from now on, prioritize, know where their priorities lie and know how to look after young women. Because if you don't protect them, we are also killing the future generations. Meanwhile, the young girls who are all school dropouts have been discouraged to return to school. The Social Development Department has pledged its support, saying it will provide these young girls with people who can take care of the children while the young mothers are at school. Lucas Mutibedi, reporting in Radlo Municipality in the Northwest. It's 8.30 Central African time and our headlines up next with Anne Musa.
A very good morning to you in the headlines. The Nigerian militant group Niger Delta Avengers says it has halted hostilities. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma has urged all parties in the DRC to actively participate in a national dialogue to find peace in the country. And women's rights activists have hailed the Egyptian government for advocating increased prison sentences for perpetrators of female genital mutilation. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you. And anti-poverty policies often fail because of an inadequate understanding of the decisions poor people make. That's the view of Abhijit Banerjee, Professor of Economics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and author of Poor Economics, a radical rethinking of the way to fight global poverty. He recently visited the International Monetary Fund in Washington, D.C. to participate in a seminar on sustainable economic development. Bruce Edwards began by asking Banerjee why so little is known about the world's one billion poor people. Well, it's very expensive to collect data. There's a billion people, but how many of us live next door to them? I mean, so you don't see them. They're, they're kind of mostly invisible, except often in their most extreme manifestations. So the you see these, the person who is, you know, begging in the street and you see the person who's made it out of poverty and tells his own story and, you know, I I used to sell tea and now I'm X. But between those two extremes, you often don't encounter most of these people. They're not in your life. So it's not at all obvious that, that we have any way of intuitively understanding what's easy and difficult for people. I think we need data. We need to actually focus on the problem. I found it interesting in, in the foreword of your book, you say that uh, poverty is, is the biggest problem in the world. Um, how, how is poverty the biggest problem in the world? Let's say that if you believe that your concept of welfare should be founded in the welfare of people, as against, I don't know, religiosity or beauty or uh, other things, if you think that the standards of living of people are the primary determinant of welfare, then I think it's obvious that that's where the biggest losses are. And you also speak a lot about poverty traps. In your opinion, do you think there are circumstances in which people or groups of people do in fact find themselves trapped in poverty? Two answers to that question. One is do I believe it's true? I, see, I believe it's true. Do I have any very well-founded reason to believe it's true? Much harder question. I would say what the evidence on these interventions, which sort of help people today and see that, you know, many years later they're still richer, suggests that there's something like a trap, because if there weren't one, you would think that they would fall back. If it were the case that, you know, people are doomed to be who they are, and some people are just poor because they are unskilled or undisciplined or hardworking enough, then you would imagine that, you know, you couldn't get them out of poverty by doing something today, because, you know, tomorrow they'll still be lazy and they'll still go back to wherever they belong. I think the evidence suggests that that's not true, that many people are in a situation where, given an opportunity, they would be in a different place. So if people are given more opportunities, the more successful they may be at pulling themselves out of 
of poverty. Sure. If you think you can identify a particular reason for her trap, which I think is not easy, but if you could, then it would be great because what, what in a sense, the interventions I was talking about just now, these are kind of very broad brush. They kind of give you training and they give you some money and they give you some, some assets and they give you all kinds of things and the hope is that one of them will stick. And if you had a much better understanding of exactly what was sticking and you could identify, you know, for Joe, it's, it's money, but for Jane, it's confidence, then you would give Jane confidence and Joe money and things would work better. You'd save resources. I'm less optimistic that we will get to that level of sophistication. So, and one shouldn't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. How important do you think money is when we're talking about aid and, and sustainable development? So aid is a slightly tricky word there because aid often is interpreted to mean foreign aid, foreign aid, like aid sent by OECD countries to poor countries. It is a very small part of social support, even in the developing world. It's a tiny, tiny, tiny part. Most money that's spent for social support is spent by local governments, local charities, all of these are bigger than aid. So let's define it to be money rather than aid. And money is very important. I think the idea that that you could, you know, help poor people without spending any money, that was the kind of promise of microcredit, which is that there's essentially a matter of lubrication. And I think that turns out to be, I think, mostly false. So I would say lubrication is not a substitute for resources. Real resources count, you know, better run, better quality education, more assets for poor people. All of those things are real, real money and real money needs to be spent. And that was Abhijit Banerjee, Professor of Economics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, speaking to Bruce Edwards. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwisi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. Informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. And I am Diana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. The 2016 Reed Dance, an annual traditional cultural dance in Swaziland, where tens of thousands of maidens participate in an eight-day event, reaches its climax today when King Mswati III is expected to attend the ceremony at a local stadium. Coming at a time when the country is hosting the SADC Summit, which has already brought together heads of state from the region, the event seems to demystify a lot of myths, including one that purports that King Mswati uses the event to choose a wife for himself. Channel Africa's Sydney Piri is in Manzini, Swaziland. When we visited a local Kachu village in the capital of Mancini Sunday afternoon, a lot of young girls were seen carrying reeds, which they call umtanga in a local language, heading towards what we understand 
is the Luzitini Royal Village, where we believe is the royal residence of the country's Queen Mother. It is here, we are a few kilometers away, temporary living structures in the form of big white tents have been erected to accommodate tens of thousands of young and married girls eager to perform at this year's cultural event. I speak to Hazel Tabete, a local middle-aged woman, about this event. I begin by asking her whether these women are forced to participate in this event. It's not a must. A, a child to go to the dance. It's you who want to go to the dance. If you like the dance, you can tell your child to go to the dance. Oh no, if you don't want your child to go to that dance, you can, she can just stay at home. Tabeta says the king does not choose his wife at the event and she believes the red dance is not harmful to anybody though she herself has never sent her own children to the dance. I've got two girls that are at home. They didn't go to the red dance because they don't want. It's just to enjoy it, if you enjoy. If you don't want to enjoy it, you just sit at home. It's not a force. Is it true that uh, this is where the king uh, chooses his wife, is that true? Mm-mm, it's not true. They just choose their wives at the schools. Yes, they just sent their soldiers at different school to choose their wives, not in the Mklanga. They didn't choose in the Mklanga then. You don't no. want your children to go? Because I'm a missionary. I'm a missionary. Our body, we are not supposed to put it during the month. Yes, this August, they used to do this returns and in Guala during December, you see. So is it harming anybody else? Do you think it's a harmful cultural practice that needs maybe to uh, to be stopped? What do you think? What's your comment? It's, that's our Swazi culture, is to practice how they dance. Is it a good one or a bad one? It's a good dance Thank because you. they used to do their wedding of the Swazi. Yes, the Swazi wedding. Right. Yes. Okay. Mm, they learn how to dance when they some somebody's wedding. Yes, in Siswati. So this is where they learn how to, to dance. dance. Yes, this is where they will learn to dance. And me, I don't know. So you can't dance? dance. Yeah. I know I can't dance because I'm a missionary. I used to do the wedding. Okay. Yes, the bride one. Okay. Yes. So you're a Christian, you cannot do this. Yes, I can't do this. The event has enhanced tourism and business has gained. Introduces my name. The red dance, it's also another event attracting more uh, tourists from all over the world. It's also this place attracting more tourists, which means this is, is the same. It means the events in this is just the same, because uh, we, by, by so doing that, we, we're earning more money from tourists all over the world. Reporting from Manzini, Swaziland, I am Sydney Katungapiri.
India's tourism minister wants foreign women not to put on skirts or walk alone at night. The right-wing politician's reckless desire has stirred up a hornet's nest as he has been embracing controversies ever since he bagged the job to boost the country's gasping travel industry. Rana Sen reports from New Delhi. If Mahesh Sharma has his way, then hemlines will be measured at Indian airports and female visitors forced to wrap themselves from head to toe during visits to sacred shrines. Opposition leader Manish Tiwari took a swipe at Sharma, who also heads India's culture ministry. If uh, Pandit Mahesh Sharma has his way, he will put every woman in a, woman in a burqa. The culture minister of India at times comes out with the most uncultured remarks possible. Diversity of culture is something which the culture minister should uh, recognize. Sharma unveiled his advisory at the Taj Mahal town of Agra, but drew fire from across the country. Human activist Ruby Mukherjee insisted India's government was bent on imposing Hindu extremism on the world's largest democracy. This is a Taliban thing. Now the Taliban dynasty is coming in uh, India. That is Hindu Taliban. And um, Taj Mahal is a heritage place to visit. And Mr. Mahesh Sharma is Union Tourism Minister. He should have applied his uh, mind. He is out of his mind or what? Dress is my own thing. Forget about the foreigners. If I go there and wear a shorts, who can stop me? I will go there. Foreign women started skirting India after the 2012 gang rape and murder of a Delhi student and a number of subsequent attack on female tourists. Industry expert Prutima Chaturvedi had a word of advice. Instead of talking about how we can make it a better experience for our visitors, we are now telling them what to wear and what not to wear. This is a trend we've been seeing ever since this government came into power, where the onus of the safety of a woman depends on what she wears, depends on how she talks, depends on where she goes. Most of the countries in the world have issued an advisory against travel to India, especially when women are traveling alone. And as outrage grew, Sharma did a perfect U-turn. The no-skirt advisory embarrassed his government a day before a visit to India by US Secretary of State John Kerry. Definitely I have not said that what one person should wear or not wear, neither it is desired nor I am authorized to say so and nor I mean to say so. It was in reference to a security measures. I have not stopped anybody not going in the night. I have advised them that when you visit, please be cautious. Please don't take it in the wrong sense. And I have advised it only in context when it was the question was put for the religious places. Sharma has challenged the place of the Bible or Quran in India's society. He also hopes to rescript its cultural history with liberal helping from Hindu mythology. For Newsbreak, this is Anna Sen reporting from New Delhi. It's 8.45 and our economics update up next with Tabi Saluhoko. Thanks, Sivalungile. Now, Tunis Air, Tunisia's state-owned carrier, plans to lay off 1,000 employees or more than 12% of its full-time workforce as part of reform plans. 
Transport Minister Anis Guadira says Tunis air reforms were planned months ago as part of a program at the airline and made an agreement with major unions to reduce costs and improve competitiveness. As part of broader reforms, the Tunisian government is seeking to curb the large losses incurred by major state-owned companies, which last year now, um, amounted to 1.5 billion U.S. dollars. Disgruntled workers at South Africa's telecommunications provider Telcom have come out in numbers to join the strike currently underway across the country. Employees have downed tools demanding 9% increment, alleging they have not been paid this month's salary. Deputy President of the Communication Workers Union, Tembane Maheneza. Demanding now 9% salary increase for 2016, which, which must be included in, in, our, in our packages, including medical aid. We're also demanding a six-month maternity leave fully paid by Telcom because we believe that Telcom does have money because they, they make their profit. We didn't get paid on the 25th of August. Our salaries were withheld. We still continue and workers are very furious as of now. They're saying if we're not going to get paid, it means we're, Telcom is foiling the strike action to go forward. We are prepared to even down tools up until three months, up until Telcom can come to its senses. South Africa's power utility ESCOM has denied its blocking a national treasury investigation into local contracts with Tegeta, a firm controlled by the wealthy Gupta family. ESCOM says it received a report from the treasury and plans to reply to it after a board meeting. The parastatal maintains it fully cooperated with the treasury and gave the department all the documentation it required. The report had found no wrongdoing on the state-run power utilities part. The treasury had said ESCOM ignored its report. ESCOM's spokesperson, Ukudu Pasiwe, says that the utility stands by statement. We have uh, started uh, giving the National Treasury information that they had requested from us from the 31st of July team. We have been having an investigation on our call contracts for over a year now. The National Treasury had said that uh, we needed to have uh, the the board approval of uh, the information that uh, we were going to respond on. So the board has not met. They are going to meet uh, um, sometime next month in, in September. And uh, we have made a commitment to the Treasury that we will respond to the uh, questions. A Kenya commercial bank has become the second lender to reduce its cost of loans to 14.5%. Its decision puts more pressure on other major lenders in the country. The decision to reduce interest rates differs from last week's position by Kenya Bankers Association that banks were to await direction from the regulator first. Air Namibia will increase its flights on domestic routes such as Eros Ondangwa and the Eros Rundukatima Mulilo route in an effort to reduce costs to consumers and make domestic flights more affordable. The changes in the routes are effective from September the 4th this year. Air Namibia's manager of corporate communications, Paul Nakawa, has confirmed the development, saying it was part of the National Airlines' goal to reduce costs to customers by operating the routes more frequently. The US dollar trades at 14.38 to the South African rand, 10.60 in Botswana, 9.77 in Zambia, 7.6 British pound, 8.9 euro. Gold is trading at $1,323, platinum $1,074 pounds, a brand crude $49.43 a barrel.
good news for listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605-47-1711. So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605-47-1711. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We have great news for you. Channel Africa has gone mobile. If you have a cell phone, you can now download the mobile app for Android. You can get it on Google Play. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We have great news for you. Channel Africa has gone mobile. If you have a cell phone, you can now download the mobile app for Android. You can get it on Google Play. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. South African Afro soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, celebrating 20 years of South African freedom and democracy. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Hi, I'm Zonke Dikana, a South African Afro soul musician, songwriter, and producer. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And you can catch me on at Zonke Music on Twitter and Zonke Dikana on Facebook. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
We have great news for you. Channel Africa has gone mobile. If you have a cell phone, you can now download the mobile app for Android. You can get it on Google Play. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Just to stories. As update up next with Tabison Dema. Good day, sports fans, once again, starting with athletics news. Three top officials of Kenya's Olympic Committee have been arrested in Nairobi as investigations dig into a series of scandals and embarrassments that engulfed Team Kenya at the Rio Olympics. Francis Paul, Secretary General of the Olympic Committee of Kenya, was arrested on Friday. His deputy, James Chacha and Stephen Arapsoi, who headed Kenya's delegation to Rio, both arrested at the Nairobi International Airport as they returned from Brazil. The men are being held at a police station in northeastern Nairobi and will be charged for their chaotic management and alleged theft of official sports gear. The Kenyan government, on 8th of August, ordered the probe into those allegations. Casta Semenya is close to winning the women's 800-meter accolade in the 2016 IAAF Diamond League Series, which will finish in Brussels next Friday, the 9th of September. But before that, the South African 800-meter Olympic champion will compete in the second last of the 2014 Diamond League Series in Zurich, Switzerland on Thursday night. Our correspondent, Geshob Nyati, has the story. Kasta Semenya is the current Diamond League race leader in the 800 meters with a total of 40 points, two points ahead of Francine Nyosaba of Burundi. Semenya started the season on a high, winning the first leg of the series in Qatar early in May. She was unstoppable in the following events held in Morocco, Italy and Monaco, collecting maximum 10 points for a win in Thursday's race in Brussels. Semenya is close to winning 40,000 US dollars for being the best runner in the series over the Tulip event, but provided she beats the Burundian champion Nyosaba. Other competitors in the race, Lindsay Sharp of England, Eunice Sum of Kenya, and Habitam Alemo of Ethiopia are way down on points to catch up with Nyosaba and Semenya. Another South African, Wade Van Ikek, a 400 meters Rio Olympic Games champion and world record holder, is second on points behind Lashon Merritt of the USA for the men's prize in the 400 meters. Unfortunately, the South African is not on the start list for the Thursday competition. The American is therefore almost assured to walk away with 40,000 US dollars at the end of the series in Brussels. Keshom Nyati, Channel Africa Sports, London. And that's your sport at this hour. Stay tuned on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Are taking us to the top of the hour for the news and, well, for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31 meter band to southern Africa is Letambulu with a track titled Not Yet Uhuru.
Hello. 